I invite you this morning to turn to the book of James, chapter 2. After, I think, 10 messages, we've made it to James chapter 2. So we are flying through the book of James. Only four more chapters to go. Last week, we we closed up looking at this idea of, of evidences of God's working in our lives. Because the theme of the book of James is, is what you see there, faith works. What God does in your heart at salvation has ongoing ramifications for the rest of your life. Um, God doesn't save us to just stay the same. He saves us unto himself that we may do good works for him, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2 last week. And we looked at this idea that, that we, we need to prepare our hearts to receive the word of God. We need to engage with the word of God. Uh, and then we, we look at our lives and see the evidence of God's change. And now we, we, we go into James chapter 2, and James begins to practically unpack some of these things for us. James 2, 1 through 7. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called. What we see here today in in James chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 is is what we may call unfavorable conditions. uh, That do not show the, the, the work that God has done in our own hearts. Father, thank you for the opportunity now to just take the next few minutes. And open your word and seek to, with your help, understand and apply these things. Lord, we ask that you would, as we open your word, open our hearts and minds today to be open to whatever change you would have us to make. Lord, we understand that as human beings, on this side of eternity, we are not perfect. But every day, with your help, we are striving after Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask today that you would convict us of our sin, that you would make us more like Jesus Christ, and that you would help us to live in a way that would honor you and glorify you. May we walk out of this place different than we came in today because we have heard your truth proclaimed. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, everybody likes to be a favorite. Growing up, I don't know if this is true with you, I think most of us it is, we relish the thought of being someone else's best friend, right? You know, and, and there's little necklaces, you know, that, that, you know, I have daughters, okay, you know, they get little necklaces and say best friends, okay, and, and there's this idea of, well, that's my best friend, and this, and, and we oftentimes we think of it with kids, but you know, that carries over sometimes into adulthood, doesn't it? Maybe not the necklaces, okay? But even as an adult, we sometimes get caught up in that statement and, and sometimes we become jealous if we feel that someone comes between us and our best friend, right? I mean, just this past week, our four-year-old daughter, Chloe, 
she said to me, that we were sitting at the table, I think for lunch or something one day, and she looked at me and she said, Daddy, who is your favorite person? Now, predictably, I crushed her hopes and dreams. Because I looked at her and I gave her the answer I always give her. I said, Mommy is my favorite person. Because that's the answer I always give, right? And I tell them, well, you are close, you and all your siblings are close second, right? And though we are all created in the image of God, part of God's sovereign creativity is seen in, in our lives how we are gifted differently. We have different personalities. We experience even different life circumstances. And as James continues to apply the word of God practically to the lives of his readers, he specifically commands in this passage against a sin that we let so easily creep into our lives, and beyond that, let creep into our churches. And that's the sin of partiality. And the practice of partiality is what I call an unfavorable condition of Christian growth. And what we see here is that because God is a God of impartiality, we must reflect this same attitude towards others. Because if we are called to be like Jesus Christ or to reflect God, and we are as Christians, then how he lives or how he operates is how we are to operate with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so, James sets up here uh, the, the command against these things, but then he, he goes through showing us the character of the Lord of glory and how God operates is different than how we operate and what that means for our lives. So let's look at James chapter 2 and consider verses 1 through 7 today as we take on this idea of, of how we in our lives are not to show partiality or favoritism towards others, but we're to treat all people as God does. In the first verse here, James very simply um, exhorts his readers towards impartiality. And, and as we enter chapter 2, I want to stop here just a minute and, apply, and talk about this idea of applying our faith. Because really that's what happens here beginning in James chapter 2. Because over the last couple of messages and over the last part of chapter 1, we've examined James' admonitions to engage with God's word in order to see God's change. If you want God to change you, you can't do it on your own. You need the word of God. You need the power of God in your life. We have to cultivate our hearts. We have to make God's word a part of our lives. And we have to, to do something with it. I mean, that's what James says, especially at the end of James chapter 1. It starts there in verse 22. And when we do this, we will see the evidence of God's change in our lives. Because faith works itself out in our actions. And now James will continue to make specific application of the truth. I read one commentator this week who said it this way. Immature people talk about their beliefs, but the mature person lives his faith. And that's true here. It's true of, of every aspect of, of our lives. I mean, how many times have you wanted to make a change in your life and you've talked about it and you've talked about it and you talked it to death, right? I, I, but you, you just, until you actually do something with it, no change is going to take place, Right? If you say that, that you want to take up running as a hobby, okay, because you have a strong dislike for yourself, okay, got my runners down here, right? No, you want to take it up as a hobby, you want to get in shape, right? 
and you talk about it, and you download an app, and you do all these things, but you never actually do anything, have you made any change? Well, no, right? The same with our faith. We can talk about the Word of God all the time. And it is good to talk about the Word of God. It is good to engage with, your, with, with what God's Word says and to share those things or even discuss those things with others. It's good to, to hear the messages of the Word of God. But, but until we actually do something with it, there is no change. And here, James goes beyond the admonition to just do something. He now admonishes us with practical things to undertake. James says, like in this passage here before us, this is what, how doing God's work looks in this instance. When it comes to how we treat other people based on, on their outward ex- appearances, this is how God's word works out in our lives. In chapter 3, when we get there, you know, in another 15 messages, um, when we get to chapter 3, he says, this is how God's word applies to how you talk. This is what James does over and over again throughout the book of James. And we have to understand that God's word is intensely practical. It's beautiful. It's theologically rich and deep. And at the same time, it is quite simple and applicable. I love, um, someone described the book of James as the gospel in overalls. That it doesn't lose the, the depth and the beauty of the Word of God because it is the Word of God, but it is also intensely practical and tells us how we, we work these things out. So the character of God exhorts us here against partiality that we are inclined in our own lives to show others. And it, it's very simple and straightforward um, in a command. James says in verse 1, my brethren, so he's speaking, he's again using that term of affection to brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. James is very prone towards these very simple commands. Half of the verses, it would work out numbers-wise at least, that half of the verses of the book of James that that we have here would contain a command. If we are going to please God with our lives, James says we must not show partiality as we live in faith. And those who possess faith in God should not be characterized then by, these, by a life of one that shows partiality. And that word that we have translated here as partiality at the end of verse 1 means favoritism. And beyond that, it carries the idea of making a judgment of someone based on outward circumstances. That you look at, you know nothing about that person. You look at their outward circumstances or, and, and who they are, what they look like, and you make a judgment call about that person. We do this on a regular basis, probably more than we care to admit. You interact or you come into proximity with dozens each week that you make even a subconscious judgment on their life. It's almost just second nature to us that we do that. Things like dress or skin color, their physical appearance, the way they talk, other characteristics come into play. And you say, well, I don't really think I ever have done that. I don't think I've ever... Okay, have you ever walked through Walmart? Okay? And, and if you've walked through Walmart once or twice in your life, I think that's the place where it comes into play the most, right? Or any place where there's a lot of people around. We do this without even thinking about it. But James says, as Christians, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, this 
should not be so. Why? Because of who we believe in. That has great bearing on how we act towards others. James says, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, what? The Lord of glory. We need to consider the Lord's glory when it comes to how we interact with or how we view other people. Our faith is not in a simple, sinful man. Our faith isn't in a book full of words. Our faith isn't in a system of works. Our faith is in a person, Jesus Christ, and his finished work as the Son of God. And that makes all the difference. Because Jesus is God. And as, as God, Jesus is in his very presence the glory of God. To know Jesus Christ is to know God. To look into God's word is, and, and to behold Jesus Christ is to behold the glory of who God is. And so if we are followers of Jesus, we must live unto God's glory in our lives. Our men at Men's Breakfast yesterday, we talked about living for the glory of God from Isaiah chapter 43. And, and that's how, as Christians, we're called to go about our everyday lives. And so we have to then ask the question, how does God view partiality? Well, if you came to the conclusion that he doesn't approve of it because James told us not to do it, you'd be right. But let's examine the scriptures, and, and I want us to see here um, a couple of examples In general, God does not tolerate partiality. He is a just God, and he expects his people to be just. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10 and verse 17, God said this, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. God required his people, Israel, to act in accordance with his own character. When they were to go into the land, when, when they were to, to uh, take the promised land, when they were to interact with themselves, you know, amongst their own people, with outsiders, they were to reflect the character of God to others. And part of that was in this idea of not showing partiality. But of course, as humans, we live so often by what we see, right? The, 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 the whatever's happening right in front of us, is how we live our lives. And so God so lovingly reminds us how to live for him. I want to refer us back this morning to the passage we read in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Samuel is the last judge of Israel. He is a prophet. He is the messenger of God. And he was sent by God to anoint the next king of Israel. The king of Israel at that time was King Saul, the king that Israel so desperately thought they needed. And Saul had failed the Lord, and so the kingdom would be taken away from his family. And so God sent Samuel to Bethlehem to anoint the next king. And God directed him to the house of Jesse. And from the very beginning, you know, Samuel, I, again, I, we, this is not in the scripture, okay? This is, but, but what, I, what you look here, I get this idea that Samuel just, you know, he knew it when he saw it, right? He knows, he's anointed a king before, Right? When I see it, I'll know what the king's supposed to look like. Because we know that Saul started out really well. I mean, he had everything going for him. He was tall, right? That's all you need in life sometimes, right? And he did serve the Lord to begin with. 
But God reminded Samuel the outward appearance isn't how it works. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab, that is Samuel, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, David, the greatest king of Israel, didn't even stand out in his own home. God did not give partiality to the one who looked like the next king of Israel. Instead, he chose the one who would serve him with his heart. Fast forward and consider Jesus in his earthly ministry and how he did not show partiality to those whom he ministered. There's a guy named Simon, the wavering fisherman who always had an opinion. What did Jesus rename Simon? Peter, the rock. You ever imagine what Peter's friends thought of him? The rock? Really? That guy who can't keep his yapper shut? Matthew, the tax collector. We all love tax collectors. What would Matthew one day do? He would write the beautiful gospel of the king. He talked with the sinful woman at the well. He interacted with the Roman centurion. He engaged in conversation with the Syrophoenician woman and many, many more in his ministry because Jesus did not see people for who they were, but who they could be in him. That's the heart of the gospel. He did not reserve his ministry for the elite or the ones who fit his mold, but he ministered to all. Even Think about this. He even ministered to the ones who rejected him, who walked away from him, and who betrayed him. And if you know the Lord as your Savior, you have experienced in your own life the impartial love of our God. God makes sinners his sons and daughters because of his impartial love. And so if we are to reflect to others what God has done for us, we need, as James commands in chapter 1, or I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 2, this exhortation towards impartiality in our own lives. And this view is first informed by considering the Lord of glory and his view on us. We cannot hold our faith in this glorious Jesus Christ and show partiality towards others. So how do we do? Do we struggle with that? Yeah, we do. James and his own readers, they struggle with that. And so James illustrates for his readers exactly what this looks like in their own context. We see the indicting example that he gives in verses 2 through 4. And you get this idea. Here you got the rich man and the poor man. He says, For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man and filthy clothes. Now one of the things you need to understand that helps us with the context of this passage is that most Christians in the early church 
were very poor. Because the early church faced extreme persecution for their faith. You think where the church was first established, the church where James was the pastor at the church in Jerusalem. What is Jerusalem full of? The religious leaders of Israel. Who do they hate more than anyone else? Jesus. And so we get this idea, and it is a glorious thing that 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost are added to the church, but 3,000 people that day signed up for persecution from those who were around them. The Roman government, from the Roman government to the Jewish leadership, opposition to the message of Jesus Christ was everywhere. And many times, becoming a Christian in this culture ostracized you from your family and your friends. Those who once had successful businesses found themselves without work. But the church, in general, continued to be faithful to God and his service. We read in Acts chapter 2 that they banded together and took care of one another. But of course, this... this, um, state of poverty was not the case for every person in the ancient world. And indeed, even those within the church, there were those who were quite wealthy. And so James shares a picture of what might happen in one of their their gatherings. And so James here in in verse 2 of chapter 2 speaks of two people who arrive into what we may call a church service that they were having or a meeting, a a gathering. He uses the word here, um, for if there should be one who comes into your assembly. It's interesting because the word assembly in the Greek here is is the word that's used most often translated for us as synagogue. And this reinforces the Jewish nature of James's audience because they were familiar with this term of gathering together uh, because if you were outside of Jerusalem and you wanted to to get a, a group of Jews together to worship the Lord, you'd have 10 men you could form what was known as a synagogue. And so James uses this term here talking about their assembly. Now, this doesn't mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that these people met in a synagogue proper. Though it is possible that that they were being allowed to use a synagogue building for their church. But they were gathered together as the early church would do. And into this assembly walked two men. First comes an obviously rich man. And from his description, we gather this. On his hand, he has observable riches. He has gold rings. Sometimes that word is translated plural, sometimes singular. And, and one author, some authors have translated it literally means sometimes a, a gold-fingered man. Okay, and that's the idea that they would stack these rings up on their fingers to show these things. He also says, in fine apparel. Literally, that word means bright or shining. It's the same word used here in Revelation 15.6. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. So his clothing, his outward appearance, sends a message. He is a man of wealth. Alternatively, he says, and there should come also in in a poor man in filthy clothes. This word poor means destitute. It was a word that was used to describe a beggar. Jesus used this word in one of his parables in Luke 16, 20. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who who was laid at his gate. So the one who comes in after the rich man is one who is in great need. 
and to what he wears and his appearance shows it as well. James says that he is dressed in filthy, or another way to translate that is defiled clothing. And it's probably not too hard for us to conjure up an image of what this would look like. If you've had the opportunity to go into to any, you know, maybe larger city that, that there are homeless living in, this, that would not be far off from what we're talking about here. That's the, the kind of appearance. And from the way James describes the scenario, we get the impression that these men are not regular attenders. Not people that they knew, but they were maybe those who had come for one of the first times there into that assembly. And there's no problem in that they came. Understand this. Neither one of them is righteous or sinful for being rich or poor. That is not the idea here. Because God has and he continues to use both alike in his plan. No, the sin comes in that, that, from those who are gathered in that place already and how they treat these men. Look at verse 3. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. The one who is, who is dressed well and, and is obviously well off, he's looked at favorably. That is the, the idea of the word when it says you pay attention. It means you look favorably at this one. He is given a good place to sit. And, and he's given a good place to sit in the meeting simply because of his outward appearance. Now, given the context of the synagogue, if that's where they were meeting, uh, but, but this will be a good, a good reference point. In, in a place like that, there were very few seats. It wasn't like you come in today to a church and, and there are seats or pews or those sorts of things. A lot of times, people would sit on the floor, they would stand against the wall. And so, uh, some of those seats, though, that were available would have footstools. Now, don't get any ideas. I know some of us would like to have a footstool when you come into church here. And so, to sit, though, in one of those seats was an honor and a privilege. Jesus actually said this in Matthew 23, verse 6, when he was talking about the Pharisees. He said, they love the best places at feast and the best seats in the synagogue. So here, they give the rich man, because of how he looks, the best seat in the house. Now, if I can just, you know, jokingly put in our context today. He walked in the Baptist church and he sat in the back row, right? Because that's, isn't that the best seat in the Baptist church? <laughs> he came in and was was quickly ushered to whatever the best seat in the house was. Why? Because of how he looked. Now, there's nothing wrong with such a visitor enjoying a good seat. The problem comes when the second man walks in and is treated completely different because of how he looks. He is told what? Will you stand over there? Or you sit here by my footstool. And that's not only inconsistent, that's demeaning. You see, the rich man was given a wonderful seat, perhaps with a footstool. And the footstool, the, the idea of the footstool was to elevate his feet above the filth of the floor. And so telling the poor man to sit by the footstool, you know what they're equating with him with? The filth on the floor. And all of this, why? Because of how they looked. James says that this, in doing this, they are guilty before God. Look at verse 4. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Really, this is undeniable 
guilt. And when James asks this question, if you go back to the Greek text, this question is asked in a way that, that assumes a positive answer. I mean, it's a rhetorical question. Have you not done this? Well, yes, you have. Have you not been partial, judging others, and, and furthermore, having evil thoughts? And that word evil is a very strong word. It communicates maliciousness in intent. Have you not had malicious, evil thoughts toward this man? And that kind of takes us aback. Because we don't want to think of those snap judgments as evil because we kind of do it all the time, right? But such judgments are evil because they go against the nature of God. No one's outward appearance should have any bearing on how they were treated by a follower of Jesus Christ. God makes it clear throughout Scripture that He cares for the poor and needy. Why does God make that so clear? Perhaps because we struggle with it. What is the temptation in our lives? Our temptation is often to curry favor with the powerful and the rich. Take it a step further. Our temptation is to, make, to go out of our way to engage with people that we think are going to benefit us. And we make that judgment. Well, that person's going to benefit me. I'm going to, I'm going to go out of my way and, and engage with them. And this, this is undeniable guilt. If you engage in such judgments and partiality, James says that, that you are in the wrong. That you are not engaging with the work of God from his word. That you are not reflecting the nature of the gospel to other people. And to live inconsistent with what God demands is sin. And when we do this, we are inconsistent with who God is and what we should embrace as followers of Jesus Christ. And that's what James says here. That in partiality, there is great inconsistency. In verse 5, James says, listen, my beloved brethren. Again, calling lovingly on fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to hear. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. In showing partiality towards others, number one, we're missing the point of God's plan. This type of partiality is inconsistent before God and the work that he does. Because God in his mercy has chosen the poor to inherit great eternal riches. God does not convict just the influential or the rich or the great and the powerful of their sin. He also shows himself to the poor, to the destitute, to the broken, to the hopeless. Sometimes more often than not. And in Jesus Christ, they find eternal riches. God meets the deepest need of every person who comes to him, and that need is the salvation from your sin forever. And he gives to everyone who comes to him these eternal riches. The poorest on earth can be the richest in heaven because of Jesus Christ. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Your faith in Jesus Christ makes you rich, no matter the status of your physical bank account. 
And these, aren't, these things you are rich in, if you know Jesus Christ, are, are things that are not measurable by anything on this earth. Because one day, all who enter God's kingdom through Jesus Christ will live in his presence forever. And that's all that matters. And so to display partiality is to be inconsistent before God. In fact, James says this at the beginning of verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Worse above all else, you have dishonored the person whom God has honored. You have disparaged the person to whom God has shown grace and mercy. And when you and I put ourselves at odds with God, that is a very dangerous place for us to be. That is a place we we do not wish to abide and do not wish to carry on with our lives. Because it makes us inconsistent in our walk with God and living for his kingdom. We need to avoid embracing the world's thinking here. Because not only is the inconsistency of partiality seen in that we miss God's plan, but secondly, it's, it's inconsistent because what we're doing is we're embracing worldly thinking. James says at the end of verse 6 into verse 7, Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? It is, the worldly, it is worldly and sinful to judge others and adjust how we treat them based on what we observe. And this has a major flaw. Sinful thinking always has a major flaw. It was the rich, James says very specifically, it was the rich who were causing trouble for the believers in James' day. They were the ones who could afford the legal fees. They were the ones who could have influence on others and, and tell people, hey, don't, don't embrace that person anymore. Pull away from those people. They were the ones that had the clout needed to persecute the church. They were the ones who were blaspheming the name of Jesus Christ in the way they acted. So to subscribe to this worldly way of thinking is to embrace the sinful, inconsistent system of the world. Do you ever sit around and scratch your head at some of the foolish things that sin makes people do? You know, instead of just getting angry when we watch the news, I mean, do you ever just think, how, right? How does that even make sense? That's what sin does to us. Sin blinds us to reality about God, about who we are before him, and about the world around us. If these Christians had really thought about it, they would have realized that they were participating in a system that was perpetuating their own problem. Well, the the rich and the powerful, they're looking at us and saying, they're Christians, they're subscribing to something we don't like, so we're going to treat them differently. And yet, here walk these two men into their church, and they look at them, and they, what? They treat them differently. They're subscribing to the very same thing that's causing issues in their own lives. That's blaspheming God whom they serve. And when we engage in sin, we also blind ourselves to the truth of God's word in the situations around us. And instead of living like Jesus Christ, we make ourselves no better than a lost world 
in activities like this. Instead, Christ calls us to live like him, showing his love and consistent care for all. Instead, Christ calls us to live in accordance with the, what James will call the royal law of God. And if you're curious about that, come back next week and we'll look at that. But what we see here is that because God is a God of impartiality, we must reflect this same attitude towards others. God unconditionally and impartially loves all people. And the only partiality, if you can call it that, that God shows is that he delivers all who trust in him from sin and brings them into his family forever. We cannot rely on what we see and observe to make judgments in a reliable, godly way. And perhaps, as we read this passage today, you you, you struggle. You struggle to place yourself there. Maybe you say, well, I find it really hard to imagine that, that I would ever treat somebody like that who would walk into our church service based on what they were wearing or or anything like that. Yet, we do this so often. That's why I challenged us to take it beyond the church context, because we're really good at putting on the game face sometimes when we walk into church, right? Say, hey, I'm going to live like Christ. Okay, let's take it back to the other scenario. Maybe we're out and about in town, and we look at others around us, and we think things like, well, I bet they wouldn't want to hear the gospel. Why? Because we observe something? Or things like, wow, look at that. Another life has been ruined. How sad. And we just kind of go on with our lives, right? And it's all based on what we see as we pass them in the store, as we drive by them on the highway. But let's, let's flip the coin to the other side. Because by the same token, we're really good at picking out those we're pretty sure we need to know. Sometimes we change our whole personality or our whole life practices just because we want to be accepted by someone that we so desperately seek to please because we feel like I have to have this person in my life and if I don't, I won't be complete. All we need is Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying embrace Jesus and shun people, okay? We embrace Jesus Christ and embrace all those people he brings into our lives. Instead, sometimes all we're after is personal satisfaction of superficial judgment. So let's take the admonition of James seriously here and let's live like Jesus Christ. Let us remember what is most important in life and that is the state of one's soul. Let's share the love of Jesus Christ with all, no matter what they look like, what they wear, how they talk, or what the bumper sticker says. All are created in God's image. All are loved by, Jesus, by God and all need his son. When we take the Lord of glory's view on ourselves and others and we begin to realize the grace that God has poured out on all men, we will be challenged to live in the same love as God loves with us. God, the sovereign creator and giver of all things, impartially loves us and he calls us to reflect this love to others. And I sat this week and I, I thought about these things and, and considered what the passage had to say. I just, there was one thing that kept coming back to my head. And it's a song I, I've heard, I heard many, many years ago. And the song is entitled, Through Your Eyes. I just thought of this phrase, 
For if once I could see this world the way you see, I just know I'd serve you more faithfully. If we could see the world the way God sees the world, would that not change the way we live? Would that not change the way we treat people? Would that not change the way that we interact and engage with others around us? We need the mind of God on these things to treat others impartially as God our Savior has treated us. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you for the power that we find therein to change our lives. Thank you for not leaving us here to just figure things out. But thank you for giving us all the answers we need. And thank you for the guidance of the Holy Spirit to apply these things to our hearts. And God, if we're honest, we really struggle. We live so much by what we see, what we experience, and we forget to live informed by who you are and what you've done. And Lord, we ask, we read the picture of here of, this, of James We ask that you would help our church not to be such a place. Or may it never be that that a person walks into Beaverton Baptist Church and finds no reception simply because of how they look or what characteristics they give off. But may they come and find the love of the gospel. May they find a God who doesn't want them to stay where they are, but wants them to Know him as Savior and grow and change. Lord, may we reflect that. Lord, as we go out throughout the week into our workplaces, into the errands that we have to run, we see the world through your eyes. A place where people are dying and going to hell today. May you fill us with a burden to reach souls. Lord, we ask now as we I have a few other things to do before the close of our time here this morning that you would help us to honor you, to glorify you in all that's said and done. In your name we pray. Amen.